Well, welcome. Um, I'm Jackie Scott, and I'm a sociologist at the University of Cambridge. This is part of the Cambridge series, I noticed, on equality. And um, I'm going to be in a funny sort of conversation with Gabby Hinsliff, um, who's written this book, Half a Wife, The Working Family's Guide to Getting a Life Back. And the way we were going to do this session is I was going to talk first um, and give you a bit of an overview of some of the issues around the gender division of labor and the way that domestic work is, is tied up with, with paid work. And then Gabby's going to talk about how she came to write this book and some of her experiences through it and also um, about some of the solutions that um, she is positing in terms of improving work-life balance for us all. And at that point, we open things up, and so we really hope that we're going to get a conversation um, that involves um, you with questions, answers, comments, experiences, etc. So thank you very much. And I'm going to start um, talking with the question, do women um, need equality Whoops, in the home to be equal in the workplace? So we're there. Okay, so if we're interested in a fairer society, then we need to address gender equality issues. And today's topic, do women need equality in the home to be equal in the workplace, is about the links between reproduction on the one hand and production on the other. I'll be showing why the traditional gender division of labor, whereby the man prioritizes paid work and the woman does the bulk of the housework and family care, is problematic in terms of gender equality. And I'll be arguing that a more equitable gender division of paid and unpaid work between men and women has many benefits. It's beneficial for the UK economy and it is beneficial for both women and men. So there remains the thorny question that if a more equitable gender divide of labour has so many advantages, then why is it so difficult to achieve and what, if anything, can be done to help increase gender equality. In, in looking at changes in gender equality across time, two stories can be told. On the one hand, it can be argued that there's been huge progress over the past half century in terms of opportunities for women. And there's a great deal of evidence that supports the positive story about gender equality. So here we have a slide showing the proportion of women in the labor market since the 1970s. And you can see that there's a real upward trend in the proportion of women working, and there's a downward trend in the proportion of men, um, some of that um, driven by, by early retirement. Now, women make up 45% of the labor force. And so 
keeping them in the workplace, retaining them in the workplace, is really quite critical for the UK economy. The pay gap, the gender pay gap, has also actually really narrowed across time. Now, this slide shows the ratio of women to men's wages at age 26. And the age is important because that's really before the pronounced gender division that kicks in at family formation um, has taken effect. Now, on the left-hand side, you've got the birth cohorts. So for women born in 1946, by the time they reached 26, their wages were 63% of men's on average. For the cohort born in 1958, the gender gap had narrowed and they were earning 84% of the male wage. And for the 1970 birth cohort, the, the gaps narrowed further to 91%. Now you can see that there was a real big jump between 46 and 58. And these women um, were reaching 26 um, in the 1970s. And the real reason that the pay gap narrowed so dramatically in the 1970s was that we had law and policy changes. So some of you might recognize that um, this um, pictures from the Made in Dagenham film, um, which was Bob Hoskins and Miranda Richardson. It's, 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 it's sort of good fun film. Um, but it's depicting the women workers in Ford who managed to bring the car plant to a standstill um, because of their push for getting equal, or as near equal as they could, pay to the men doing equivalent skilled tasks. And they were helped enormously because of trade union involvement. This was collective action. And they were helped too because Barbara Castle was the minister responsible in Harold Wilson's government. And they pushed through the 1970 Equal Pay Act. And then in 75, you had the Sex Discrimination Act, which was the first time that qualifying pregnant women um, got the right to pay and returning to their jobs. So got the statutory maternity pay and the job reinstatement rights. Other changes have been positive. Um, gender role beliefs have changed markedly over time. There's a whole battery of gender role questions which are asked in the British social attitudes each year. And in 1984, when these were first posed, let me just give you views on one question. If you ask people whether they agree with the view a husband's job is to earn money, a wife's job is to look after the home and family, then in 1984, 43% strongly agreed or agreed with that statement. By 2012, that had dropped to 13% agreeing. So a 30% shift in 25 years, that's big in terms of attitudinal change. And what's driving that 
is really one of generational replacement. It's my mum's generation um, who really held the view that there should be a traditional gender role divide. That cohort dying out and the population now more open to other ways of men and women dividing up family and work responsibilities. So another change um, that there's been across time. So these same birth cohorts shown over on the left. And this is the percentage of men and women with higher educational qualifications. So in 1946, that birth cohort, men were outnumbering women in vast numbers in terms of going on to higher education. By 1970, it's women um, who are more likely to be coming out of universities with degrees than men. And of course, that's still the situation today in the UK and in most countries in the OECD, so the advanced Western world. There's also been a reduction in labour market segregation. Women are working in a much wider range of occupations than was the case 25 years ago. They're also making inroads into what were formerly um, male um, job preserves. So, for example, you've now got women clergy, you've got women football journalists. It's not just what's called horizontal labour market segregation, where barriers are being broken down. It's also the case that you've got more women represented in professional and managerial classes. Now, when you look at the sort of glass ceiling story, it's, it's very much one of whether the glass is half full or half empty. Um, some glass ceilings are getting smashed. Women have come a long way, but they've got a very long way to go. And so there is certainly a story about gender equality, which is far less rosy. Um, gender segregation in the workplace persists. For example, there's a real leaky pipe in terms of dropout rates of women scientists, um, very few um, women scientists still. There's a lot of jobs which are sort of typically male or typically female, and there's clear economic penalties associated with being in the feminized sector. So caring jobs, for example, um, command notoriously bad rates of pay. And women in general um, are often victims of what's called the sticky floor. They get stuck in jobs at the bottom of the pay ladder. And it tells us something about labour market inequality in the UK, that it's women who disproportionately benefit from the minimum wage. And let me remind you, that's £6.31 an hour, um, hardly a living wage. One reason why there's been so much change in some aspects of gender equality and so little change in others has to do with the asymmetry in terms of the speed of gender role change. Women's lives have changed a great deal in terms of incorporating paid employment um, into their 
life course. Men's roles have changed less. You could say that for highly educated women, many are actually behaving like men in terms of their careers. They're choosing not to have kids, or if they're having children, they're often taking a minimum time out of the workplace and usually outsourcing childcare to other women who have less earning potential. But in the UK, the majority of women with young children opt for part-time work as a way of juggling home and work life, and some opt out of the labour force entirely. And so we still have a really marked motherhood penalty in terms of pay, but that penalty is very much structured according to the educational qualifications of the mum. And it's the lowest educated who sacrifice, if you like, the most in terms of the lifetime earning potentials because they're taking much longer out of the labour market, because they're going part-time. And so they're losing experience and they're losing hours um, over the life course, it's been estimated, as um, in excess of, of a quarter of a million pounds of lost income. Whereas the university-educated, far smaller pay penalty because they're not taking that much time out of the workforce. Now, it's becoming apparent that's the crucial transition for shaping male and gender role specialization. And specialization in, in domestic division of labor increases really markedly after the first child is born. And the gender specialization with him specializing in paid work and her doing more of the domestic, the unpaid work and caring, that means that that division has very little negative impact on his labor market <coughs> rewards, but markedly reduces hers. Now, I've got a colleague at Oxford, Jay Gashuni, who refers to this as the Allerednik syndrome, which is Cinderella spelt backwards. So in the old days, you might remember, a handsome prince marries a scullery maid and turns her into his princess. Nowadays, at the point of becoming parents, the prince turns his princess bride into a scullery maid. <laughs> now, it's a bit overstated, but this is from some time diary data. And people are asked to keep um, um, fairly meticulous diaries of how they spend their time over, over the past week. And, and so here we've got the average picture for him and her um, before the, the first child is born and then in years after childbirth. So going across to five years. You don't need to see the details. It's showing you the time spent on care work, routine housework in the um, sort of deep purple, and paid work 
in the, in the blue at the bottom. And I haven't even bothered to um, put labels as to which is the man's and which is the woman's because I think it's pretty obvious. Now, over time, women and men's share of domestic labour does become more equal. And as she goes back into full-time work, then she markedly reduces the amount of time she spends on unpaid work. Um, and men do um, take up more of the household chores. But it's at a much slower rate than women are putting it down, and it sometimes really doesn't happen. And so we call this um, lagged adaptation. <laughs> now, there's quite a lot of my colleagues who are writing books about the stored revolution as far as gender role change is concerned. I don't think it is a stalled revolution. It is much more of a lagged adaptation. But even when she goes back to full-time work, the woman is still doing the bulk of the unpaid work. So what can they do? Well, they can quit their jobs, but most of obviously can't because they need the money. They could quit their husbands, um, on the other hand, you know, a search for an egalitarian new man might take some time. Um, they could suffer in silence and get on with what Ali Hostchild calls the double shift, um, doing both their paid work and the bulk of the homework too. Or they can start to complain and nudge um, towards a, a sort of more equitable divide. And there is evidence that suggesting that women are getting more vocal about the fact that the existing division of labour is unfair. In a recent British Social Attitudes survey, when heterosexual couples were asked about their divide-up of domestic labour, six out of ten women said they do more than their fair share of housework. What I found really interesting is that four out of ten men say that they are doing a bit less or a lot less than their fair share. And so I do think um, things are changing and possibly they'll change a little faster if men knew that there are benefits of a more equitable um, division of labour. Um, there's a couple of, of pieces of evidence I just wanted to draw your attention to. Um, one was um, from some work a colleague, Wendy Siegel Rushton, did, looking at that 1970 birth cohort. And she found that in couples where the man is doing more of the domestic labour, more of the fair share... Um, then that the couple is much less likely to split. Now, there's a well-known positive association between women's employment and the risk of divorce. And it turns out that if you look at the domestic labour that the man does, that more than offsets that risk if he's, if he's doing his, 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 his fair part. And in some recent work I've been doing, looking at um, work-family conflict reports, I was really quite surprised to find that when the household work isn't just left to the woman, 
it's not her work family conflict that goes down, it's his. And again, I think this is something to do with the measures. A lot are about the way work spills over into home life. But some of the questions tap how much your family gets fed up with the pressures of your job. And I think women are getting fed up when work is the excuse for not um, um, being there for, for helping with the family and, and, and playing your full role in the family. And I think there's evidence, too, that men are finding a certain conflict if their egalitarian ideals um, aren't getting translated into reality. Whoops. Now... I've been talking more about the individual level, and I think that um, it's important to recognise that if we're going to make progress on gender inequalities, then it does involve the state. Individual choices are constrained by structural inequalities. And the UK certainly hasn't been at the forefront of change in gender equality legislation and policy. And in particular, the UK was very late in recognising that sex equality in employment is not attainable without complementary support for nurturing activities. So high-quality, affordable childcare, for example, on the one hand, as well as more robust um, measures to ensure a further narrowing of that gender pay gap on the other. Um, where's this got to? Um, given our politicians' timidity to introduce further policy or law to improve gender equality, then I don't think it's surprising that even in a country like ours, where there's very strong gender egalitarian ideology, inequalities in paid and unpaid work are persistent. I'm going to leave it to Gabby to say whether she's found the state support adequate in her struggles to find a solution to the dilemmas that having a child has posed for balancing family and life work. And really interested to hear some of Gabby's suggestions about creative ways that the working family can get a life back. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gabby. Thank you, Jackie. I'm very grateful to you for that introduction, and particularly for the phrase lagged adaptation which is a so much more elegant way of saying, why don't you ever do anything? Why is it always me? Why do I have to do anything? But yes. This is the... Um, when people ask me what Half a Wife is about, and by the way, if you're looking for it later, it looks like this now in the flash new paperback version rather than the bilious yellow early one. But um, it's the book I wrote really to explain to myself what the hell I thought I'd done, giving up a great job, which I loved, in order to see a bit more of my son and my husband. I was, until 2009, political editor of The Observer, which was in many ways my dream job. I love politics, I love writing, to be able to do both and get paid for it felt like an amazing sort of stroke of luck. Um, but it was an all-consuming job. If you're lucky, it's a 50-hour week. If you're not lucky, it's a 60-hour, 70-hour week, a week that doesn't stop, a week that consumes your evenings, your weekends. There was a fair bit of travel involved, because if the Prime Minister goes to Baghdad or Washington or wherever the hell it is, you go too. Um, and all of that was fine until I had a baby, and suddenly everything changed. Or rather, at first, absolutely nothing changed, because I went back full-time and full-on and fully determined to kind of get on with it, and um, I decided I was going to cope by just doing everything I'd done before and the baby, but I was just going to do everything kind of faster <laughs> and madder. 
and I was going to do 47 things at once, and then it'd be great. And I would sleep when he went to university, because that would all be fun. And um, I realised I was a bit out of control when I was talking to a female cabinet minister from the last administration. She was reminiscing about when her children had been the same age as mine and how she'd coped. Because the great thing about being a working mother is that everybody helps you <laughs> along the way. Everybody who's been there is constantly sympathetic. And um, she said that when they were tiny, she realised that by... Um, Cleaning her teeth in the morning while she was still on the loo, she could save 30 seconds. And I, instead of thinking, you're mental, um, and why are you telling me this? Don't you know I'm a journalist? Um, I thought, oh, 30 seconds, I could do a lot with that. <laughs> and at this point, you start to think, this is not really long-term sustainable here. But I had no idea what I would do if I stopped. I didn't know who I would be. My identity was completely bound up with my professional identity, with being a journalist. It's, it was all I knew. And I, th I thought I would be lost at sea if I gave it up. And what, in the end, helped me to come to the decision I, I did come to was thinking... I mean, people often think that you lose ambition when you have a child. And actually, that's not true. You just become, in a sense, more ambitious. You look at your job and think, well, if I'm going to be away from him for all this time, this had better be worth it. I'd better be doing something with my time that counts. And the more and more I looked at my job, the more and more I thought, I'm not sure I am doing something that counts, and I'm not sure I am doing something that continues to engage me as much as it had. And I thought that if I left, I could do things that I hadn't done before, and that I didn't have time to do when I was working, and that actually it could be a beginning of something, not an end. And one of the things I wanted to do was write a book. So here it is. And I started off by interviewing women and men who'd done the same thing that I had, who'd left a great job to spend a bit more time with their children, because I wanted to kind of... I had no idea why I'd done it, and I thought sort of working out how other people had done it might be a starting point. And we'd have these conversations, and I would start by asking them about, you know, how their industries were structured and their relationships with their bosses and their children and their children's needs and demands and how their children... And every time the conversation came back to their partners, at which point I thought, oh, OK, fair enough, this is what we're going to talk about. And they would all say, all the women would say, oh, he's great, he's a really hands-on dad, he's brilliant, you know, he's really involved, I'm really lucky, but... And then there'd come this long stream of stories saying exactly the opposite. My favourite was the woman whose husband was a Marxist feminist academic, profoundly, vehemently egalitarian in every sense, except that he didn't do hoovering, and he didn't do that, and it, when it was his turn to look after the children so she could work, he was kind of forgot. And... Um, and, you know, she was completely and constantly frustrated by the difference between the public and the private man. I interviewed her chief executive who packed her, still had to pack her husband's suitcase every time she went on holiday because he wouldn't do it. And always had to get the pee bags ready before she went away because he didn't know what went in them and the children ended up with the wrong kit. And then I thought back to the time when I was working, I'd interviewed um, a psychologist who's a world-renowned expert in involved fatherhood and confessed after the interview that he works all the hours he can get and leaves everything to his wife. And at that point, I thought, these women aren't working women in the sense that a man is a working man. And it tells you something that no one ever says the word working man, because <laughs> it's just assumed that if you're a man, you work. But um, they were really... One of my interviewees, who was a social worker, said she felt like a housewife with a full-time job. And that's really what they were. And no wonder, you know, they weren't coping. And at this point, any of you in the audience who've read um, The Second Shift, Arlene Hosschild's book, which, if you haven't read it, I think you totally should... Um, will be thinking, well, duh, what did you expect? Didn't we always know this? Wasn't this always the argument that women end up doing double shift at home? So why is this still a surprise or even relevant now? To which the answer is, firstly, that you'd hope things had changed in the 30 years since she wrote that book. And secondly, that you always think it's not going to happen to you. You think, well, I'm smart. I've got a great career. I've got a great marriage. I'm not going to fall into that old trap. And then you wake up two years after having a baby and think, oh, I have. And how did that happen? So part of writing the book was, was about writing 
the story of, of how and why that happens. And I think a large part of it is that too much of what is said and written about working parenthood isn't about working parenthood at all. It's about working mothers. How often do you hear the phrase working mother and never the phrase working parent when really what you're talking about is something that applies to both? And the upshot of that is that somehow this always becomes a problem that's parked at the door of mothers. It becomes something that's your problem to solve. So all the sadness and all the guilt and all the what we can do about this then conversation that goes on in many dual career couples ends up sort of and finally, it's your problem. But I think it's also to the detriment of fathers because I think what gets buried is the fact that many men too don't like working stupidly long hours. Many men too miss their kids. Many men would like to do different things with their careers after they had kids than they did before. But you're kind of not allowed to talk about that. That's, you know, you're not allowed to own up to that because this is a woman's problem for women to talk about, apparently. So what I wanted to do with the book is come at this the way families do, from a family point of view. It's a challenge for the whole family in a dual career family, how you work out where the time is for work, where the time is for the kids, where the time is for all the other things you have to do. Never mind when your parents get elderly and someone needs to look after them, your responsibilities to your wider community, everything else that you want to do. It has to be resolved within and by a family, not just by one person in that family. And I think we hear an awful lot now about the, the so-called feminine mistake, which is, you know, giving up too much, sacrificing work to the family, and then realising when he runs off with his secretary or 20 years later you miss your old career, you know, that was a big mistake. We don't hear enough about the masculine mistake, which is to pour everything into work, which is what men are conditioned to do once they have kids. You're the provider, you're the one who's meant to be out there earning the money, and then realise 10 years later that you can't pick your own child out of a lineup, and that your wife is no longer on speaking terms with you, and that she's got far too good at running a life without you, and you're somehow surplus to requirements. And I think... We know, as, um, as Jackie referred to Wendy Siegel Rushton's um, work, which I also look at in the book, egalitarian, egalitarian relationships are very good for marriage. You know, that's not a great surprise. But what I wanted to look at as well is where egalitarian relationships intersect with careers. What many families do to resolve this whole jigsaw puzzle of work and family and not enough time for anything is revert to what's called a one-and-a-half earner pattern. So he stays full-time, she goes part-time, and for a lot of families it works. It's what we did when I first gave up work. I worked three days a week doing freelance journalism, writing a book, and my husband worked full-time. And it does work for a lot of people, but the trouble is it kills female careers. And I think it, you, you suffer a significant pay penalty for it. You fall behind often where you would have been. And I think... It also limits men, because if your wife has taken the decision that she's going to go part-time and your, her income's halved, well, your freedom of manoeuvre has completely disappeared. It's up to you now suddenly to earn all the money. It's no good you saying, well, actually, I would quite like to be here for bath time sometimes as well. That's kind of not an option anymore. So I think the one-and-a-half earner model serves its purpose for some people very well, but very much not for everybody. And what I wanted to do with the book was look at alternative ways of clawing back some time. There's a fascinating um, survey the European Commission did a couple of years ago asking people across EU member countries whether they wanted it made a public priority um, to have a more equal distribution of uh, work in the home. And there was much more positive response from countries where women work long hours because obviously it was a really pressing concern for them. Yeah, everybody in the family is working long hours. Where the hell do you get the time to do this stuff? And in countries with a lot of part-time work like ours, there was a much less enthusiastic response, which made me wonder whether part-time has become a bit of a safety valve, really. It's a kind of convenient answer to not having to look at that problem of who does the homework because it's kind of all resolved. She goes part-time, she carries on doing it all, whoopee. So from that sense of, you know, how do we start addressing that basic question came the idea of half a wife, which took root in my head long before there was ever a book, which was really saying there's been this shift, as Jackie illustrated, towards from a sort of 
breadwinner homemaker model towards a dual career model, um, something to which work hasn't really adapted. I mean, how many careers sort of vaguely assume there's some kind of invisible person at home taking care of everything so that you can go to Washington at a minute's notice or you can stay in the office till midnight? You know, the assumption is that there's someone else doing all that stuff. But in a lot of families, there isn't someone else doing all that stuff, at which point it becomes very complicated. But families also haven't quite worked out what to do with that gap where the wife was, the person who did the home and the kids and the, you know, all the other things that you have to do. So... That's part of it. But half a wife form also means in my head a sense of not just how you divide up that work so that both of you are doing a bit of it, but being two people. Uh, being able to be sometimes a person who works and thinks and influences and sometimes a person who's at the school gate. It's like what Whitman said, I am large, I contain multitudes. Why is that not possible? Why can you not be both? And both of you be both, not just, not just women. So from that sort of comes the question... How on earth do you get there? Because if you look at that, that EU survey question, you know, let's make it a, a public policy priority to um, think about domestic equality. Well, how on earth do you do that? You can't legislate for who does the housework. What is government's role in this? And actually, of course, the answer is that politics has a huge impact on the time we have to parent, the time we spend at work, and on how we arrange our family lives. Of the things I look at in the book, the, probably the single thing that I'm most glad coalition government is doing is transferable parental leave. So the idea that over the years maternity leave, a father should be able to take some of that if the wife, if the mother's going back to work, you know, you should both be able to take a period at home. Because maternity leave is really when roles consolidate. It's when people, couples who were equal partners until then, whose lives probably went on very similar tracks, you know, suddenly one of you goes off in one direction and one of you goes off in the other. And that's incredibly disconcerting on a personal level. It's like, whoa, <laughs> you know, our two worlds are suddenly separate. And it's as if there's a glass wall between you and you can't quite... Um, get through to each other. But it's also when, you know, if you've been off for a year, well, your boss is kind of half expecting you to come back part-time anyway, and you're probably more attached to the baby by that point, and you're the one who knows how to do everything, and your husband is the one who doesn't really know how to collapse the pushchair. And suddenly, you know, you're kind of set in this track without, without having meaning to be set in it. You've become set in two different tracks. So transport parental leave, incredibly important. There will be wobbles along the way. Every now and then there's a sign of panic from government, business lobbies for no more employment regulations. But I think it's incredibly encouraging to see Matt Hancock, the skills minister, announced a couple of days ago um, that he's taking two months paternity leave over summer when their third child is born. Because it's really important for men to see men do that and their careers not suffer as a result. Because that's always the fear and that's a perfectly legitimate fear. It's, all, it's a lot of fun for women to stand around saying, no, oh, men should do more, men should help at home, well, sexist pigs. But actually, I think it doesn't get you anywhere without looking at the very real price that men do pay for wanting to do things differently. And if you don't address that price, nothing is ever going to change. So I think we also need to look at the different kinds. If you want men to work in more flexible career patterns, you have to look at what kind of flexibility men want because it's not always the same kind of flexibility that women want. Surveys, when you ask men if you were going to work flexibly, how would you want to do it, they have a massive preference for home working, for, so working from home rather than from the office, at least part of the time, for compressed hours, so that's essentially doing five days work in four, so you might do four long days and have Friday off, and for annualised hours, where you negotiate a contract to do a certain number of hours per year, but you have some flexibility about where you do those around their busy times and your busy times. Um, whereas if you ask women, part-time comes top of the list. And part-time is what a lot of employers think of when you say flexible working, they think, uh, three days a week, mums. You know, they don't even think 
about the other forms of flexibility that you could possibly offer. And I think those are the kinds that men want. Interestingly, all those three options that men prefer are full salary options. Don't take a pay cut for doing any of those things. And I think, A, there's a big lesson there for women. Hang on. <laughs> Why are we giving up money unnecessarily? But also, you know, that is very, very important to men's sense of themselves as providers. And I think that's a huge thing for men when they become fathers, even if they don't feel it before. I think fatherhood absolutely brings a sense for men of, God, I'm responsible for not just the baby, but for the two of you now, for providing for the two of you. And I think if there is an emotional as well as a practical attachment to keeping your salary and not taking a pay cut. So, and there are things that government can do actually to encourage those forms of flexible working. There's fantastic schemes um, in the US. Virginia and Georgia, both states introduced um, tax reliefs for companies that encourage home working. They did it mostly to cut congestion and cut pollution from travelling to work. But obviously it's a huge knock-on benefit to family life. And both schemes paid for themselves because the state saves a vast amount of money on environmental costs and on stupid things like maintaining roads. State of Utah went to a four-day week for public sector workers to save costs, basically by not having to keep the offices open five days a week. And they saved $1.5 million in a year on just on miles travelled in state vehicles. And there were three times that, I think, on reducing overtime and absenteeism. And eight out of ten of their employees liked it so much at the end of the year's experiment, they wanted it to continue. That's an example of a kind of win-win arrangement that it wouldn't be that hard to introduce here, actually. You could look at tax reliefs for um, initiatives that free up office time. But I think... You also have to come back at the end to, there is a huge role here for government, but there's also a huge role of responsibility on couples to negotiate between you who does what. And I do look in the book at um, various ways, having done this myself, <laughs> various ways to renegotiate within a marriage the deal that you ended up with. But of the, sort of the five um, examples I give, I think probably the most important is to ask yourself not how do I get him to do more, which is what women often ask themselves. It's how did he get me to end up doing it all in the first place? And the answer to that is often because I let him and because I want to hang on to this more than I think I do, actually. There is a fear about giving up your role as kind of domestic queen of everything um, and of being a bit too easily replaced, actually, that is sometimes underneath that unfairness in the home. There's a sense that there's a bit of gatekeeping going on, that, you know, women say, I want my husband to do more, and then the minute he does anything, criticise him for it. And, and take over and niggle. And you just have to be prepared for your child to go out with their clothes on backwards sometimes. No one ever died of that. And fish fingers for tea every now and then is not, you know, a death sentence. So, you know, there has to be a sense of, of stepping back and letting things be done in a different way. And letting the benefit of the fact that sometimes things are done in a different way accrue to your children. And for those of you, anybody in the audience who is not yet in this position, some of you I see about 20 years off being in this position of having, having families of your own. I'm very glad some of you have brought your daughters along. But um, I always quote the advice Sheryl Sandberg gives, which is the most important uh, chief operating officer of Google, which, uh, Facebook, sorry, which is that um, the most important career decision you'll ever make uh, is who's going to be the father of your children because that's going to determine an awful lot about how much time and energy you have for a career. And I think an awful lot of young women look at their partners and think, he's going to be a great dad, because he loves playing with my nephew. And actually, that's a rubbish indicator of how good someone's going to be as a husband and father. How often he stacks the dishwasher, that is what you're looking for. Because there's about 10% of parenting that's lovely about playing football in the garden. And there's about 90% in the, in the sort of very small years, it's about routine drudgery. And you know, play, how willing you are to play hide-and-seek with a small child for five minutes is a really, really bad indicator of how good you're going to be at that. So um, I don't want to talk at you for too long. I would very much like you to talk at us. So I'm going to shut up right now, go over here and sit down, and then I'd very much like to hear questions, 
experiences, challenges, no, that's all rubbish from any of you in the audience. And I'd very much like to hear from the men in the audience as well as the women. Thank you. Now, now we're in a position where we can see you as well, which is great. Oh, yeah, the lights have gone up. Good Lord, there's so, people out there. <laughs> we've, we've got a question in the front here. Um, um, yeah, my question is this question about the status and the pay for childcare workers. I have worked for a long time in a sixth form college and it's a college where they teach A-levels and vocational courses. And the desperate hope every September is that enough girls will have failed to get five A to C to fill the childcare course. And we're looking now at a situation where we have working class women looking after middle class women's children and not being given the status, the pay, the training, and to take up your point about government, they're now going backwards where childcare workers expect to look after even more children. And I think as women, we really do have to take up the fight on behalf of childcare workers, giving that better pay, better status, and government legislation so that we're not as middle-class women thriving on the backs of working-class women. And I'd like to know what you think about that. I would think that you've made a very good point there. <laughs> are we going to take a bunch of questions together? Or are we going to take yes, let's, let's um, if we can, we'll, we'll Get keep more that way. Mm -hmm. um, topics in mind. So, yes, uh, over by the mic. Hi, um, kind of follows on from that. I wondered where you stood on employing um, domestic help, because I yeah. do the yeah, double yeah. shift thing, and, and the house is a shithole. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'm just, like, I, I can't bring myself to pay someone to clean my house because I feel so bad about employing a woman. And I know that's sometimes dismissed as a real guardian reader's worry. And there's other people who said, like... I'm a writer. I have nothing against guardian readers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one, too. <laughs> but I just, uh, yeah, I just don't get where... I wondered where you stood on that, and is, is, is that, again, the point that lady there made about are we taking off the, you know, riding on the backs of other people who don't do as well? Thank you very much. Um, in, in the middle, and um, then we've got some people also near the back. Should we try and take three at a time, possibly? Yes, uh, I don't that remember would be great. any more than that. <laughs> uh, thanks. Oh. Thank you. Uh, I'd just like to challenge the point about part-time, sorry, I'm here, um, about, about part-time and that being um, about writing off uh, career aspirations. Um, I worked in the public sector and there was uh, what I now think of as a golden period in the 90s when it was quite possible for women to, um, to have um, promotions and to do very good jobs as part-timers and I see that that's something that has been very significantly eroded. I take your point about other flexibilities but I think that's one that should still be challenged because women should have the opportunity to continue with their careers in that way if they choose to do so with family life. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want me to deal with those? That would be great. No. <laughs> Sorry, okay, in, in, in sort of chronological order then. Um, the lady who asked about the status and pay of childcare workers is absolutely right. And I think um, the way governments 
kind of trying to tackle it at the moment, which is to argue that we'll bring more graduates into childcare, but because that costs more money, um, we'll deal with it by um, extending the ratios so that they're looking after more children, is not a solution that many parents are in favour of, actually. And I think it's, it's an understandable way in a time of limited resources to get around the problem that better paid childcare workers cost more, but I don't think it's necessarily a sustainable answer. I mean, there is an undeniable truth here, which is that good childcare costs a lot of money. It costs more than parents have got to spend out of taxed income, and it costs more than government is always willing to spend out of other people's taxed income. But there is always going to be a role for government subsidy there. And there's been some really interesting work done by both um, the think tank IPPR and by the Resolution Foundation think tank, which I was part of a commission that they did uh, looking at all sorts of things, but particularly looking at this issue of cost of childcare. Over time, decent childcare pays for itself because you bring enough women back into the workforce, paying taxes, contributing to GDP, that you recoup not all, but a large part of the investment that you make. And I think we just have to keep pushing that argument, which is that, yes, childcare, good childcare, state-subsidised childcare costs a lot of money up front, but it repays you over time a thousandfold. And I think the lady who asked about, um, about the question of hiring a cleaner, I felt exactly the same, always have done. Um, in the end, I settled for the... I think there has to be a moment of honesty where you say to yourself, if I want to work and see my kids and have a life and occasionally speak to my husband, and um, you know, just generally do all the things I want to do, something has got to give. Somebody said to me the other day when I was considering um, a, a job I might do or might not do, that it's fine to take new things on, but you have to ask yourself what you're gonna drop. There's a limited amount of time, and if you start doing more with it, you're gonna have to do less of something else. And what I've essentially decided is that I'm going to adopt a fantastically slatternly standard of cleanliness um, and I'm going to accept the fact that I'm going to have occasional moments of mortification when anyone sees my kitchen surfaces. And, but no one's actually going to die of food poisoning, probably. And that, that's just the deal. Sorry. But, you know, when my son's a bit older and I have lots more time in the day, um, then I'm going to have a sparkling, clean house. Until then, well, probably don't drop round to ours too often. That's all I'm saying. But I think, I think sometimes women have to ask themselves about the standards of housekeeping that they're holding themselves to. Sometimes there is a sense of holding yourself to a standard of housekeeping that could only be obtained if you were doing that all day long. And actually, that's not realistic. I just wonder whether you stood on hiring a woman, another woman to clean You could always hire a male cleaner, if that would make you feel better. Sorry, I can't hear you. Sorry. Yes, if we can get the microphone there. Yeah. I think what that lady was... Helping somebody out to earn some money yeah. from another country who is also a mother like myself. And I have no qualms about doing that because it gives me more time to work with my children and my husband. But, and I'm helping her life with her three children. Yeah. So I don't think no, there's no, there is a valid point to be made there as well, which may not be a highly paid job cleaning, but it's a, good, you know, it's a job and there may not be other jobs available. So the sense of exploitation is not all one way. Um, can I... The, Final point I wanted to pick up on, which I absolutely agreed with, was the lady who said that um, part-time shouldn't be written off as an option. And I completely and utterly agree with you. I work, I don't know what, how to describe the way I work, really, because it's all over the place. But um, if it was anything, it would probably be part-time compared to what I used to do. My son's now in school, so I work mostly doing school hours, except if I did that, I wouldn't be here, because it's half-term. Um, so it, it kind of ends up being all over the place and round and about. But yes, as long as part-time, part-time doesn't have to be a trap. And it shouldn't be a trap. And good employers can make sure part-time is not a trap. 
But if you look at the figures, if you look at the figures for the part-time pay gap compared to the full-time pay gap, there is a significant financial penalty that many women pay. There is, and that's usually because in many careers you have to step back down the ladder to find a job that has the right kind of hours, so you're suddenly working at a level that is under performing your skill level, so you've, you've gone backwards in your career a bit, that's okay, as long as at some point you can go forwards in your career again, but that's what many employers aren't that great at doing. They tend to kind of park you on a certain track and then you continue on that certain track. It also, what part-time often does as well, and why I'm a passionate advocate of a more flexible jobs market overall, is that it's, it's, it's often very easy to negotiate part-time hours in the job you're in. But then if you want a job anywhere else, and most careers depend on you moving from time to time, it's very hard to find the same deal somewhere else. So people get stuck where they are because they don't dare leave the arrangements they've got, thinking they won't get the same flexibility from an employer who doesn't know them. So you get kind of stuck. And that is the, um, the danger and the difficulty. But yes, I'm not at all arguing that part-time should be discarded as an option. But I do think people need to know there are other options. And I do think we need to make sure that part-time jobs don't become a trap. Thank you very much for those. If we could take uh, another three. Um, there's a, a man at the back there, please. Right round. Hey, Mike's um, all over the place, yes. Thanks very much. I, uh, I'm a little nervous about the negotiations that'll happen after today, but... Uh, um, is, that, is that your wife sitting next to you? Yes, it is, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm interested that you mentioned about the uh, politics of the situation. I think in the UK we are... 22% of MPs are women, and uh, we're 17th in the EU. Um, all women shortlists have changed the nature of the Labour Party, but very slowly. Um, I just wonder, realistically, what else can be done to improve the representation of women... Uh, in Parliament's local government. Great, thank you. Um, and yes, we, we have another gentleman here, please. Um, they're about five rows back, four in. <laughs> Do I just speak? Okay. Um, I'm working this out as we go along, so it might come up out a bit funny, but you are talking and measuring and discussing consequences of the way that work is organised, are you not? Yeah. And sh uh, you did touch briefly on better ways of, of organising work. Surely this has to be a political commitment as well, that the way of macho working has to change? And surely it goes back to the Greeks, doesn't it? Whose view of women was that they were all weak and feeble persons. I think that's it. Thank you. Thank you. And Can we take one more for we, we, um, had, had one at the front here, please. Um, um, four in. It sort of picks up on what you were saying before about the, 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 the way that work is perceived and work in the workplace and work at home and why one is unpaid and not regarded as work, or is, <coughs> excuse me, yet it's still described as labour. And I was intrigued by terms of legislation and how that has effected change and how the state can be involved in the examples that you've given in the United States of tax relief, etc. Yeah. I come from New Zealand where we gave women the vote in 1893, first country to do so, and, and more recently an act was passed which affected women in a kind of a sideways thing, which was the um, Accident Compensation Act, when that gave women the right. So accidents had always hitherto been in the workplace. And so that if a woman was, or a man was injured at their home, they 
had equal entitlement for compensation. Now, that kicked into a question of whether home was a workplace and therefore should be regarded as something was paid work and that there should be a state contribution, not just for childcare, but for stacking dishes. And whether it was done by the woman or the man or a carer, it should be regarded and analysed. And it never got anywhere, actually, sadly. But I was just wondering how legislation might move the home more into a, a probably, properly perceived... Um, Thank you very much. So, starting off, I think, possibly with politics. Yeah, and representation of women in Parliament. I think it's one of those questions to which there's no simple answer. But I think, um, as you say, positive discrimination had an effect. And actually, although the Conservative Party stopped short of doing something like an all-women shortlist, instead it had the A-list, which is basically creating a list of not just women, also men, but particularly featuring ethnic minority candidates, gay candidates, people who wouldn't normally naturally be selected, and saying, look, to constituency issues, you don't have to pick any of these people, but <laughs> please do. And actually, that had a huge impact. So, you know, there are things you can do short of positive discrimination, but I think there are two things that Parliament needs to be thinking about now. One is working hours and location. I mean, you cannot change. You can, you can mess around with parliamentary working hours as much as you like, and it's changed a lot in the last decade, but if you are an MP in, you know, sort of Carlisle with three children and you're constantly having to be between two locations in the country and, you know, have a reduced amount of money to spend through the expenses system on uh, housing in both those parts of the country, there are a lot of women who are going to look at that deal and think, I don't want to be at the opposite end of the country from my children all week, thank you very much. Um, and that is a very hard question to get around, but it has to be something that Parliament thinks about. And the, the other thing that I think absolutely should be thinking about is older women, because I think politics could be a fantastic career for someone who's had a career, then maybe had a career break for a bit, and then wants to change tack, as people often do after they've had a career break. And you have that fantastic life experience of both having had a real job in the outside world, which people always say they want politicians to have now, and you've had some time at the school gate and lived life like a normal person um, and actually politics is the kind of career that should be able to make great use of life experience it's a fantastic career for older women and I wish women in their 40s and 50s ran for parliament because you've got you know there are people in the lords till they're 90 you've got a long time to make your mark in parliament but what happens of course is that constituent associations are desperate for people who are 29 and I think um, it has to think really hard about about women in that age bracket um, all of the other questions um does there have to be a political commitment to a less macho working style? Yes, there absolutely does. And I think, um, arguably, you see signs of that now, even at the top level in politics. When David Cameron and Nick Clegg announced, sort of practically on day one of the coalition, that they were moving the time of some cabinet meetings so they could do the school run, that was a massively powerful message to send. Doesn't matter. I have a friend who has children at the same primary school as David Cameron. I wouldn't say he's exactly on the school run every day, but um, that was an important message to send, that no matter how important you are and how busy you are, you can make time for your kids. Um, I probably haven't got long enough time to address the question of whether women are weak and feeble persons, but um, coming down to the final point about um, work and whether unpaid... There used to be a campaign in the 70s called Wages for Housework, um, which argued that, that the only way to value kind of unpaid labour was to pay it like, it, like you know, paid work. Um, and in an odd way, the sort of campaign now for transferable tax allowances and for stay-at-home mothers to um, basically have a tax subsidy to stay at home is, reminds me very strongly of the Wages for Housework campaign, except one comes from the left and one comes from the right. I think the trouble is that if you in some ways subsidise women to stay at home and somehow it always ends up being women to stay at home, is that where you trap people? And I think there are other ways to recognise 
unpaid work at home than just to salarify it and call it a job. And I think in a way, you know, is home a workplace? Yes, but for completely different reasons than it used to be. More and more of us are working at home. More and more of us are picking up some of our in-office work at home. The boundaries between home and work are blurring. And I think that creates a lot of opportunities for women. I would say that Wi-Fi has been as liberating as the pill to women. The idea that you can pick up some of your work stuff at home by email. No one needs to know where you are. The amount of stuff I used to deal with on my mobile phone while you know, skipping out of the office early so that I got home in time for pickup. You know, and nobody needs to know where you are. It's enormously liberating. Well, we've got time, I think, um, for just three more. I will try it. Um, if if um, we've got a oh, question here, um, um, lady in the red jacket. Yeah. Hi. Um, I think your half a wife is very generous. How low would you go? <laughs> Great. Um, and at the end here. Thanks very much. I'm sorry my wife wasn't here to hear that, but I'll... Try to, make sure, try to make sure to remember that she shows me where the dishwasher is when I get home. Um, I just wanted to know, it was very, obviously very heartening figures on the um, narrowing pay gap. There's been a lot of talk that austerity has disproportionately impacted women. I'm just wondering whether that will have reversed at all in the last four years or so. Thank you. Yes. And there's a question. Um, just going up the road. Yep, that's great. Oh. Well, whoever, whoever wants to still be asking a question, good. <laughs> um, Gabby, you said um, in your... Oh, you're there, sorry. <laughs> in your book um, that you looked at it from a family perspective. Do you think that in today's society that thinks that um, a healthy family is almost um, old-fashioned... Um, and the society that um, puts a healthy family in danger, do you think that that is um, something that you took into account while looking at equality within couples? Thank you. Okay, very quickly, because there's a sort of timer of doom ticking down in front of me here. Um, how low would I go? Less than half. I wish my husband should be here to answer this question, actually, but he's out trampling <laughs> around the mud in the, uh, somewhere out there with my little boy. Um, would I, I think your question was basically inferring, would I be happy to give a hell of a lot less time than that to being a wife and a mum and all the rest of it? You'd have to ask my son and my husband whether they think I do give anything like half my time to them. They'd probably say no. But I think it's a, it's a massively personal decision how much time you want to give to which bit of your life. And I've never started from the point of view of saying everyone needs to do this, everyone needs to do that. If couples are both working 100 hours a week and they're both happy and everything's working for them, fantastic, great, tell us all how you do it, you know share the secret because we all really want to know and if couples are have chosen to do it the old-fashioned way you know one completely at home one completely at work if that works for you fine I'm not knocking it I was writing essentially for the people who are somewhere in the middle and can't make it work and for those people each of their sort of personal formulas how much time they want to give to home how much time they want to give to work will be different and they'll change throughout their lives what you want when your child is 18 months old is not what you want when they're 18 necessarily but it was really about finding loose, flexible formulas that would work for people at whatever stage and in whatever way. Uh, gentleman who asked about the pay gap, the um, statistical answer is probably as to how does austerity affect the pay gap, don't know yet because the figures lag too much. But um, I, my guess would be that actually, possibly, news on pay is, depending on which income group you're looking at, is relatively positive. If you look at the under-30s now, the statistics are the pay gap's flipped. 
So women under 30 earn more than men. Oh, no, it's not under 30, sorry, it's under 25, it's, it's I think. Under yes. Yeah, earn more than men. And it's that sense of, you know, women are coming through, girls are coming through, doing better in their GCSEs, better at A-level, getting better degrees, going into higher earning jobs. What happens to, those, to that cohort when they come through and have kids, which they probably won't have until their late 20s, early 30s, we don't know. But at that stage, the pay gap's reversed. Um, and if you look at what's happened to pay in lower-income families, what you see is female income rising and male income falling. Um, so that's not the pattern at the professional end of the market, but that's the pattern at the low and middle income of the market. So I think what's happened to pay in times of austerity is a complicated question to answer, and we don't know the answer yet. Um, guy who asked about healthy families, I don't know what you mean by healthy family, because to me a healthy family is one where everybody's relatively happy, no one's dead yet, and um, you're all still talking to each other. And I don't think that bears a huge... Um, relationship to how formal your relationship is, whether you're married, if that's what we're, we're getting at here, whether you're still together, whether you're a single parent family, whether you are a same-sex couple, whatever you are, I don't think that matters. I think most people still want and cherish the idea of a happy family that works as a team, that pulls together where everybody's having their needs met. And I think that remains an intensely important idea to most people. I think our understanding of whether or not you need to be in a certain, have ticked certain boxes to achieve that has changed. But I don't think our, that's most people's goal. That remains most people's goal. Great. Well, I think on the note of happy family and how to get there, um, we're going to have to end the session. But thank you so much for coming and for your participation. <laughs>